everyone. Welcome to the Your Pastor Reads Books podcast, a podcast for Christians of all stripes where you'll hear ministers discuss their love of reading and the specific books that are shaping them to be wholehearted followers of Jesus and better givers of spiritual care to others. I'm your host, Heather Weber, and I hope you enjoy our first season of conversations with ministers about the books that they read. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Lear about his reading life. Joseph is the lead pastor of Resurrection Assembly of God in Iowa City, Iowa. He has an MA in Religion and Christian Ethics from Yale Divinity School and a PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity from the University of Aberdeen. He's happily married to Holly, and they have three young boys, Lazarus, Barnabas, and Moses. In his free time, Joseph enjoys following the Liverpool Football Club and writes on Substack under the account Pastoral Theology with Joseph Lear. Joseph's been a friend for the last seven years, and in that time, I've known him as a passionate lover of theology and the ways in which theology can equip, empower, and inspire the everyday believer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Joseph, welcome to the show. I'm honored to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, Some of our listeners know this, others do not, that our paths first crossed about seven years ago because you and your wife, Holly, and your one son at the time had moved to Iowa City or you were thinking about moving to Iowa City to revitalize another local Assemblies of God church in town that has been around since when? Like how long has Resurrection been? Uh uh, it's been around since the 1950s, but this okay. building was built in the very early 1960s. I think they were meeting okay. in an old firehouse before that. Nice. All right. So we met when you guys were right at the beginning of that journey, and I was right at the beginning of my journey of leaving my staff role at another church and then planting City Church, which which was a few miles, right, from Resurrection yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think as the bird flies, only about one point two miles. Okay. But of course, that's as the bird flies. That's so. as the bird flies, right? And so, for about six years, you and I were on interesting parallel tracks. I was planting a church, starting from scratch. You were going in and doing what the Assemblies of God calls revitalizing a church. So, six years later, seven years later, can you just talk about what that process was like and where you feel like you are now? Yeah, so uh, the church wasn't far from closing, um, which is what uh, the revitalization process is for, right? Is to help a church that is on the verge of closing to find new life, find a new path forward, and hopefully uh, have life and life more abundantly, uh, communally speaking, um, for generations to come. And so uh, Resurrection Assembly of God was originally called First Assembly of God Iowa City. Um, they had been without a lead pastor for close to a year. And um, uh, when I was looking for a pastoral placement after my doctoral work in Scotland, I uh, just happened to reach out to the Iowa Ministry Network. And Pastor Tom Jacobs uh, Zoomed me while I was still, actually, no, back then it was Skype. He Skyped me. Uh, while I was still in Scotland and kind of laid out the options for me here in Iowa and Iowa city seemed like a great fit because I had had experience in higher education and the university of Iowa is a large big 10 university that kind of dominates this town. 
And I thought that my academic credentials would be a relevant, um, would be relevant to the community here. So uh, we pursued the option. Um, I like to think of uh, church revitalization uh, like resurrection and church planting like the um, virgin birth. Uh, they both require uh, miraculous intervention. Only God can do it. Right. And so um, that's perhaps what was happening down at City Church, right, is that uh, God was uh, giving birth to a new community uh, miraculously, um, and he was raising us um, from the dead. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we renamed the church in the end Resurrection Assembly of God, because we wanted to communicate not just to ourselves, but to the community around us, two things, right? First of all, um, that we were no longer dead as a church, that God had given us new life. But even more importantly, that the one who is responsible for making this happen is the one who we worship, who is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it was a long journey. Uh, uh Iowa City is a transient community um, because of the university, um, because of it being not too far from Chicago. There's a lot of people who pass through town trying to find uh, a new chapter of life and because of uh, the, v- the VA hospital here. Um, so uh, trying to revitalize in a town where people just don't stick around very long means that it might take a little bit longer. But we made it through the process with the help, uh, financial help of the Iowa Ministry Network and their leadership. And uh, we are revitalized now. Um, We have a thriving community here at the church. Um, We still trust God for our daily bread, but he keeps on giving it to us. And we are extremely grateful for um, this treasure that we hold in jars of clay. That's awesome. I celebrate that with you because I, I know some of the ups and downs of the journey that you guys have been on. And I've seen how God has just provided manna for you. What would you say has been the most rewarding part of revitalizing and what was the hardest for you? Um, I think the most rewarding part is, uh, is seeing the people uh, who, who stuck through the whole process. Um, You know, when you, when you start introducing change to any church, not to mention an historic church with people who have attended for decades. Um, a lot of times those people, uh, despite your best intentions fall off the boat and feel like, feel like the change is too much. They got to go elsewhere. This is no longer their church, but there were a number of people who, um, and I'm talking like people who again had been here for decades at the church who stuck through the process, who, um, you know, had some growing pains, but in the end, we're, we're excited and are excited about what God uh, has done through uh, bringing me here and partnering me with the other pastor here at the church. Her name is Pastor Abby Anderson, and um, and seeing what God has done in our midst. I mean, we've seen miracles take place. We've seen people's debts canceled. We've seen people become Christians. We've baptized innumerable people. Um We've seen uh, the spirit move in people's lives. And uh, when the work of God is manifest, uh, that's when people who uh, might otherwise uh, leave because of changing tides um, can stick around if they have a genuine faith. Um, And that's genuinely a miracle in and of itself that people stuck around, uh, like I said, because of how difficult change can be for people. Uh, I remember uh, the superintendent here, Pastor Tom Jacobs, telling me, 
there's a there's a high likelihood that no one who is here in the first year will be here in the second year. Um, he just kind of let me know that up front to prepare right. me for that emotional pain. And yet here we are seven years later and some people have stuck through with us and I give God the glory. Amazing. And, and of course some haven't, but you celebrate the fact that there are so many who did. And I, I know it's a miracle. One of the things that I often said about church planting was that you could set your own culture and nobody would leave because you were just starting it from scratch. And there was nobody who'd been there for decades who was, who would say to you, you're not doing it the way that we've always done it. And so church planting felt a little bit like having a clean slate in that regard. And so I think in that area, that work was harder and it was truly miraculous that, that there were people who could witness to what God was doing. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, I'm grateful to God. You asked me about the most challenging aspect yes, too, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I'm trying to think what the most challenging aspect has been because uh, there's been uh, innumerable challenges. I think the transience of the community has been a tremendous challenge. Of course, uh, you know, the church um, uh, was small. Um, we have grown numerically, but it continues to, we, you know, have about 120 people who call uh, church home here. And uh, that always presents with its uh, certain financial uh, obstacles, right? Of right. trying to pay the utilities. Um, we have a sewer line that needs to be replaced in the next year. And that's, you know, probably going to be a minimum of $30,000, which we don't have. Um, but uh, perhaps the other challenge is the, the, just the other side of the coin of the people who have stuck around, which is the people who have left um, in anger or in protest or um, just out of disillusionment. Um, the people who I prayed for and suffered with and pastored in hopes that um, we could catch the same vision that I uh, felt so deeply God was calling us to here at the church. And uh, yet they, uh, they moved on. Um, those lost relationships uh, are probably the most difficult and uh, uh, yeah. They're so hard. Biggest but, challenge. Yeah. Yes. And, and anyone who is in pastoral ministry at a church, they know what that means and they know how it feels it's a little bit like losing a limb for a while. Um, yeah. And that's an appropriately biblical metaphor. Right. Right. I do yeah. feel like the limbs grow back eventually, but it does feel like you've lost limb for a while. So yeah. uh, uh, anyone who's listening, I feel like uh, if they hear about your need for a $30,000 sewer replacement, man, feel free to make a donation to Resurrection AG for that. Um, there, there is a give button at right? I couldn't pass yes. up that opportunity, actually. Uh, so we are talking about pastors who read and what pastors are reading uh, on this podcast. And I would love for you, before you talk about the book that you're sharing with us today, I'd love for you to talk about a little bit about your reading life and not necessarily your reading life right now, but how you became a reader, um, how you fell in love with reading, what shaped you, any of that. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I became a reader in my adult life, actually. Mm. Um, my, my dad tried this thing when I was in the early elementary school where he told my sister and me both that he would give us like, uh, so 
appropriate context here for what I'm about to say. I grew up in West Africa as a missionary kid, as they call me. So my parents were missionaries there. And so most of my childhood was spent with a different currency. So um, uh, he offered me, I think, 25 uh, francs, which was equivalent to like uh, maybe two cents, three cents. (laughs) Um, He said, if you read a book, I'll give you 25 francs. Um, and 25 francs would get me one uh, foosball game down at uh, the local boutique, which, you know, was okay. a pretty big incentive for me as like an eight-year-old that I could go play foosball with my friends right. or buy a piece of buy a piece of chewing gum. But uh, I could never actually do it. I was too busy playing soccer. I was wow. too busy uh, shooting my slingshot to actually sit down and read a book. Um, uh, my sister, on the other hand, read voraciously wow. and made a lot of 25 francs um, <laughs> in the process. She actually asked my dad if he would give her four times that 100 francs, which, you know, again, somewhere around uh, 10, 15 cents, somewhere in there, uh, if she read the entire A encyclopedia. And wow. uh, she did it. She did wow. it as like, a, as like a fifth grader, I think. So wow. uh, anyways, uh, but honestly, it was my sister's example of always reading that I always aspired to that. Um, she was older than me and set an example for me. So uh, when I hit college, um, I uh, I don't think it's too much to call it. I had a had a faith crisis. I was at Bible school. I was studying to be a pastor, but um, I was deeply dissatisfied with um with the Christian discipleship that I had experienced outside of the home. Like my parents were excellent examples and um, uh, like they discipled me well, but I wanted, uh, I was disappointed with what I had otherwise received. And so I had all these big questions that I wanted answered. And that's kind of what kicked me into reading was, um, was I just started reading the textbooks of my classes because they were helping me, answer the the deep questions about the justice of god the problem of evil uh the nature of salvation um etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh yeah that's how i became a voracious reader myself in my adult years and that eventually resulted in me going to yale divinity school like you mentioned and onto doctoral work as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you were doing some deep theological work as a college student and had deep theological questions <laughs> which then informed your path in education as you went on. Yes, that is, that is correct. And, and I continue to read uh, as much as I can. Um, I do read some fiction now. Um, I enjoy fantasy, but um, I uh, honestly, like if I go a significant amount of time without reading something deep, deeply theological, I just don't feel as good about life. Um, I, I need to reconnect with those existential questions on the regular to feel like, hmm. um, to feel happy, to feel joy. Hmm. <laughs> That's great. You know, not, not all pastors think of themselves as theologians or are thought of as theologians, but I think of you as a theologian and I think you see yourself as a theologian. And uh, would you disagree with that? No, I, I totally agree. And honestly, like it's how things are, are supposed to be. And I think of you as a theologian as well yeah. um, with uh, different emphases and different capacities and passions and interests. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Christian university model was originally like monks who were on, you know, like who were scholar pastors. I mean, they were street preachers yes. like Thomas Aquinas yes. was part of the Dominicans who were street preachers 
and uh, he wrote one of the greatest theological works of uh, of Western Christianity um, in the Summa Theologiae. And he, uh, uh, yeah, fundamentally, it was about pastoral theology. And um, we have this bifurcation now of theology being in the university context and um, the church being the place where where everything is supposed to be pragmatic. And mm. uh, I think that's a problem. It's uh, a problem. I want to bring theology back to the local church. Um, and I want to bring the local church back to the academy so that there's a mutual symbiotic relationship there. Um, and Pentecostalism is the most likely context that that can happen in, I think, um, though there are enormous challenges even in our movement. I appreciate your perspective. And it recalls to mind an interview I had with uh, Marissa Price just a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, which actually may be the episode that precedes this in the podcast. But one of the things that she was pointing out is that everyone does theology. Everyone is a theologian. The problem is whether they are aware of it or not, and whether they are being intentional about about their theology. And I think when you're talking, you're talking about intentional, intentionally bringing theology to the local church, helping people think about what they believe about God and whether it is biblically founded or not. Would you add to that? Yeah, just I 100% agree. Uh, And and I think when you're not intentional about it, that's when you're tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, uh, which the book of James warns us about. Um, Right. uh, When you're unaware, you're being affected by forces that are there no matter what. Um, And we need to, uh, yeah address those things with a high level of intention and care and precision and love. Right. Amen. Okay. So I'd like for you to talk about the book that you're sharing with us today. I fully expect that you are going to share a book that's theologically rich to you, but also one that has shaped your life. And I think um, sometimes sometimes the local church, as you say, or just like your average layperson in the church might think theology, that is that is not something I need to think about or something I, I need to worry about, or it doesn't necessarily like have a practical outlet in my life. But I think you are going to prove otherwise today or try to prove otherwise. So tell us about the book. Yeah. So uh, just uh, as a precursor, as a uh, caveat or whatever, um, before I talk about the book about pragmatics, um, I understand that impulse, right? Because there are uh, the... The critique of the university that it's white tower theology that doesn't uh, mean anything for, the, for for our lived lives and world and all that kind of stuff uh, is true at times. Um, I, I, I've criticized even uh, uh, the the institutions that I teach at uh, for this precise thing. Um, I'm out here on the front lines and I see students um, studying and reading uh, things in their classes, and I'm like, this is. This is irrelevant um, to the world that we're living in. On the other hand, um, I think that the the task of, of theology and and the the importance of bringing theology to the local church is that not everything is supposed to be pragmatic. Um, not everything is supposed to have an immediate outlet um, in measurable outcomes. Um, I think that that is a false and demonic ideology um, that says that everything has to have measurable outcomes. Um, one of the uh, uh, things about theology is that um, is to say that 
contemplation is worth it in and of itself. Um, it's just enjoyment. And uh, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, our lives are going to be full on enjoyment of God. And that's not going to have any immediate practical outcome, but like it is an end in itself, mm. just that endless gazing upon the beauty and majesty and mm. wonder. And yet, you know, not everything has to be pragmatic, but yet at the same time, you talk to even secular psychologists, counselors, therapists, or whatever, the people who have the ability to pull themselves out of depression, out of uh, despair, are the people who can rediscover a sense of wonder in the universe. Mm. And that speaks to something of, of who we are, fundamentally speaking, as humans, that I think is true on, uh, on a theological level, mm. that we are created to wonder. And so theology is the way in which we are invited to begin wondering and uh, being in awe of this God that we worship. And again, that is never wasted. Um, so Robert Jensen is a, an American theologian um, of our past generation who uh, died in 2017. Um, Lutheran by... Uh, original trade, but throughout his career became increasingly ecumenical. Um, his work initially uh, focused on Luther, um, but he was also a profound interlocutor with uh, the World War II anti-Nazi theologian Karl Barth. Um, but then he also was an expert in uh, patristics, um, early church fathers of the church, and uh, engaged in all sorts of ecumenical dialogue between Lutheranism and Anglicanism and Orthodoxy mm. and Catholicism. Um, and uh, really just had an incredible grasp of the cr Christian theological tradition and had not only an incredible grasp of it, but an ability to distill it down and to write works that, um, that engaged the tradition, made some modifications and yet was still true to that tradition without, mm. you know, going off the deep end into some sort of weird heresy or, again, some interest in addressing only our particular political, economic, or social moment mm. and really doing the hard work of wondrous metaphysics to talk about what, uh, what, is, uh, what is the superstructure of reality that we all mm. uh, live in. And... Uh, because of that, I just have really enjoyed his work. Oh, and I was going to say, not only did he have the ability to bring this down, but he could do it in a concise way. Mm. Like he wrote a two-volume systematic theology that uh, was, you know, maybe a grand total of 400 pages. I can't remember the exact page numbers, but so many systematic theologians out there struggle to keep their first volume under 800 pages. Um, and, and Jensen, uh, yeah, he was terse to say the least. <laughs> So uh, the book that I uh, wanted to talk about, uh, however briefly or long that you want to engage it, is his actually his commentary on uh, the book of Ezekiel. Um, and what's uh, truly uh, miraculous about this or wondrous about this is that he was a theologian, uh, first and foremost. And in the academy, there's, uh, for worse, really, I was about to say for better or for worse, but honestly, for the worse, a big divide between biblical theolog uh, biblical interpreters and theologians. Um, theologians will are afraid to use the Bible um, because 
all the biblical interpreters will come along and say, well, you haven't paid appropriate attention to the historical context Mm. of this particular passage, which debunks everything you're trying to say theologically. Mm. And then uh, vice versa, um, that uh, biblical interpreters, uh, critical scholars will say things like, well, the Old Testament has no concept of the Trinity. So, uh, you know, uh, it's not real. And all the theologians come along and slap them on the wrist. Right. Um, cause so, they're, okay. That makes sense. I wonder if I can just have you in a very concise way, explain what is the difference between a biblical interpreter and a theologian? Like what is the difference between their two tasks? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, maybe this is the simplest way of putting it that uh, as a theologian, you care about God, you care about the church you believe in God, you believe in the church, you believe that what you're doing is seeking after truth. Uh, When it comes to biblical studies, a different, um, uh, a different discipline, you might come to the Bible as a non-Christian and, uh, and try to read it as an historical document. And this is something that came out of the enlightenment period Mm. Um, that we should be able to apply scientific, the same scientific objective methods that we apply to any other discipline in the world, um, and bring it to the Bible and, and, and critically appraise the Bible, um, from a non-theological, non-Christian perspective. And that has kind of been the defining characteristic of biblical studies departments for the last, oh, two to three generations at least. And, uh, yeah, the point is, is that you don't have to be a Christian to be a biblical interpreter. Mm-hmm. I mean, like my own, uh, my own doctoral advisor, um, who was somewhat of an expert in the new Testament, uh, did not claim Christianity for himself. Um, whereas the theologians, um, who were talking Trinity and church and Christology and soteriology and, you know, the doctrine of salvation, et cetera, um, d- doctrines of baptism and communion. These were all people who were Christians, self-avowed Christians who actually cared uh, about the contents and wanted this to affect the church. Um, biblical scholars, unfortunately, have a reputation for trying to dismantle the church and deconstruct, to use a more contemporary uh, term than anything else. I see what you're saying. So the theologians always have skin in the game, and the biblical scholars may or may not. So yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, I have a literature background. So I do approach scripture and I, I do wonder at it from a sort of like a lit point of view. Right. And, and I think about it critically in that way, but, but I do have skin in the game yet. Not everyone does. Thank you for making that distinction. I'm going to let you carry on with, with this Ezekiel commentary. Yeah. So, uh, I am not an expert in Robert Jensen. I kind of fell into his works after I was done my, with my doctoral degree, and I fell into his works because of one of my dearest friends. His name is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Burdett. He was in the program with me uh, at Aberdeen in Scotland, but he was doing theology, whereas I was doing uh, biblical studies. Um, I emphasize uh, Luke and Acts in the New Testament in my uh, dissertation, uh, but he was actually writing his thesis on Robert Jensen. And it was my friendship with him that uh, convinced me to start reading Jensen myself. And uh, one of the things that, uh, apart from everything I've already said about Robert Jensen, that really um, uh, struck me is that he was incredibly adept with the Old Testament. He was uh, he was a scholar of the ancient Hebrew language and knew actually how to handle the Bible um, with aplomb, 
uh, in a way that many theologians uh, in our contemporary world just don't know or care uh, to do. And um, and he came uh, to the biblical text um, in a way uh, to bring the the Bible itself into conversation with historic conceptions of deity. Um, and uh, for those of your listeners who don't know this, um, Western Christianity has inherited a lot of our concepts of deity from ancient Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle. Um, and one of the things that uh, ancient Greek philosophy um, said about God, if there is a God, that God must be basically the opposite of whatever we can observe in creation. Creation is always changing, always dying, always developing, always doing different things, right? And God has to be the opposite. God has to be static, unchanging, unmovable, right? And that resonates with us as Christians because we have to have a strong creator-creature differentiation. The creator cannot be a creature because otherwise he can't be the creator, right? right. And uh, and if God is a, a creature among us, then uh, there could be competition for our affection for him, etc. Mm. But Jensen comes along and says, okay, yes, there's something to be said on that front. But he said, he also says that this Greek uh, conception of deity does not allow for the incarnation. Mm. God became man. And that kind of rails against this idea of deity being unmovable, unchanging, um, uh, and not involved in creation in a way that um, signifies story in particular. Um, And that's one of the things that uh, Jensen brings to the table that I just deeply appreciate is how everything that God is, is a conversation and therefore a narrative. And therefore, God is deeply involved and invested in his um, in his creation. And whatever we're going to say about God, we have to begin with the incarnation and mm. how God has manifested himself in Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, when it comes to his commentary on Ezekiel, um, he puts this into practice um, where uh, he reads the prophet Ezekiel simultaneously with the critical eye that is expected of an ancient historian, but also addressing the very real and concrete um, big questions of the universe and the practical questions of the church and Mm. the church's witness. So uh, one of the things I love is how um, he addresses uh, Trinitarian theology in the Old Testament and in the prophets themselves. Um, So, you know, over and over again in the book of Ezekiel, you have this phrase, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And um, Jensen says, okay, on like an historical level, a biblical scholar would just read that and say, okay, so God spoke to Ezekiel. That's like the simplest reading of it, Mm -hmm. right? But Jensen is also going to say, but we know from the Gospel of John, who is interpreting the book of Genesis, that the word of the Lord is, in fact, Jesus. Mm. When we're reading Ezekiel, we should read this in a way as to say, hey, um, this 
uh, phrase, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, is simultaneously God speaking to Ezekiel, but also God coming to Ezekiel in an in in a way that in, anticipates the incarnation itself. Um, it isn't the incarnation, but it anticipates the incarnation that God doesn't speak anything or anyone other than Jesus Himself, and so um, and this introduces a Trinitarian structure to what's happening in the prophets that God is simultaneously um, speaking a word to Ezekiel, but the word and the word is simultaneously something other than God, but identifiable with God. Um, and that's how we get God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's these are um, simultaneously the one God, but identifiable, identifiable apart from each other. Hmm. Powerful. So what does that do for you as a follower of Jesus? Like, how does that shape you to just be able to wonder at that or meditate on that? Well, on an extremely practical level, it's that, uh, that when God speaks to us as an individual Christian or as a church, but let's keep it like down to the individual level. Like when you are, um, uh, praying in your own devotional life and you feel or hear or sense that God is speaking to you. God isn't just speaking from afar. Mm. Christ is present to you by his spirit. And uh, seeing the Trinitarian structure of these uh, prophetic texts can help us discern and marvel at the Trinitarian structure of our own interactions with God. Mm. That by the spirit, Christ is present to us as God, God the father speaks um, and I think that that is particularly powerful because this is something unique to Christianity, right? That um, God is not uh, so transcendent and far from us that he has to kind of shout at us from a distance. Mm. He's present to us and speaks to us um, in his own presence. Mm. Um, and I think that that is uh, also relevant to the works of the church that you know when when we baptize the resurrection assembly of god i always tell people that the same thing that happens um for um uh the same thing that happened for jesus at his baptism is happening for us that when jesus came up out of the water god the father spoke you are my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased and the spirit descended in the form of a dove and i say we can't see with our naked eye but this is the same trinitarian event that's happening and because we are baptized into christ his baptism actually becomes ours um, in that moment. Um, same thing with the Lord's Supper. Um, God speaks and always speaks in visible words. And communion is a visible word that mm. is brought to us and uh, present to us in a way that um, just hearing something audibly isn't. Um, God speaks visibly. Uh, and I think that that's all very important for the life of the church, for yes. people who who feel like God is really far off, um, but he's actually really close. He's close in person. It's, it's beautiful. Um, as you're talking, I was reminded of Richard Rohr's book, the divine dance. I don't know. Have you ever read that one? I have not. I, uh, I won't say that I am on board with all of Richard Rohr's theology. However, um, the divine dance is, uh, a look at the three strangers at the Oaks of Mamre meeting Abraham, um, inviting him to table with them. And 
And Roar, this has been many years since I've read it, but Roar, you know, makes the claim that this this is a Trinitarian invitation and that mm-hmm. this the same Trinity that is inviting Abraham to to enter into their community is inviting us as well. And I remember reading that book and and maybe feeling something like what you felt reading Ezekiel, but feeling uh, this strong sense of God's presence and a reminder that this is the same God who is inviting me to table with him in communion, also just in my devotional time, also in my every waking moment of every day. And it is powerful. It is a powerful way to um, be reading scripture. Yeah. And actually uh, Genesis there talks about the angel of the Lord uh, coming to Abraham. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, Jensen says the same thing about the angel of the Lord. That's whenever the old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord showing up, it is simultaneously the presence of, uh, of God himself and something Mm -hmm. other than the Lord himself, um, which again, introduces this Trinitarian structure that Jesus can be simultaneously God and something other than God. Um, uh, And I think that that's, yeah, incredibly important. Um, The other way, uh, just uh, if we have time uh, that I think that this really manifests itself um, is helping us uh, um, kind of field questions of theodicy, which theodicy is basically questions about the justice of God, right? Why, why did God allow evil into the world? Um, Could Mm -hmm. he not have stopped it in the first instance? Um, And, and then why does he go, go about fixing it the way that he does? Why hasn't Mm -hmm. God shown up yet and just dealt with all the evil in the world? It's, uh, it's a problem that, that isn't unique to Christianity, right? Um, But Christianity has its own particular way of, of dealing with it. And we can't answer the question finally, I don't think, but Robert Jensen has has some helpful tools um, for reading Ezekiel and the judgment and wrath of God in ways that I think are entirely redemptive mm. and can help the church in its in its public witness. So, for example, in Ezekiel yeah. chapter chapter twenty two, there's this uh, prophetic word that uh, Ezekiel um, unpacks where he talks about uh, the evil and injustice in the city of Jerusalem. And how it's not just uh, the political rulers, but the priests and um, and everybody, basically anybody who has any sort of power is oppressing people, oppressing the poor and committing deep acts of injustice. And it talks about this scene where God goes about the city looking for a man hmm. who might, um, uh, uh, a righteous man who might give him a reason not to destroy the city. And this, of course, has echoes of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and mm-hmm. Abraham's bargaining with God, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very real stuff. And, um, and God doesn't find anybody, um, but it, it hands out, it, it, it holds out this possibility that, um, uh, that there could be a man in the city mm. that, uh, that would um, uh, uh, stay God's wrath that would would thwart it and uh, be an answer to it. Um, and uh, this is uh, what Jensen says about this is that this curious event that God's wrath is coming, but even as his wrath is coming, he goes into the city to try to find a reason to stop his own wrath. Mm. And this signifies for us like God's own deep emotional involvement with his people. And beyond that, that God can be going about the city 
as someone other than himself, but is also himself, hmm. <laughs> um, which introduces a even a Trinitarian structure to God's wrath. Hmm. Um, that that um, that uh, that there's almost an internal conflict to God Himself hmm. as He brings His wrath, but also wants to be the answer to His hmm. own wrath. Wow! And and we don't. And Jensen is careful, and I want to be careful too to not state this in any way that violates the oneness of God, because right. God is in fact three in one and one in three. But uh, he says again, that this anticipates incarnation. Um, that mm-hmm. that's uh, these prophetic words that came to Ezekiel are all in, t- in anticipation of what God will do in Jesus Christ. And that's if there is a conflict in the Godhead that needs reconciliation, we can see again, the gods going about the city of Jerusalem, even as his wrath is coming um, as an anticipation of what happened on the cross, mm. that Jesus, God, the son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, uh, and that, and that his resurrection is the answer to that moment on that cross. Um, and I think, again, that doesn't deal in the strictest sense with why God allows evil to persist, mm-hmm. but it gives us the tools to say, Hey, whatever we're going to say about the nature of evil and Christians actually have a lot more to say that I think than many other religions out there. Um, we're, uh, we're going to say that God is emotionally invested in thwarting his own wrath. Um, and we see that first and foremost, and primarily in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Right, right. And I think that that is incredibly powerful and helpful for the church's public witness. Right. I, I mean, I think about Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They don't mm-hmm. know what they do. Yeah. And there is God saying to God, forgive this evil. Yeah. Like, and, and, uh, God is talking, God is a conversation, right? Uh, yeah. to go back to the baptism, wow. uh, th- God calls Jesus his beloved son. And as he does that, the spirit comes down on him. And that's the reason why Jesus can call God father is mm. because the father has called him son. And so Jensen talks about God as a great conversation where um, they uh, deep cries out to deep father Mm. calls out to son, son responds to the father and the Holy spirit is there conversing. Wow. That is something to ponder and meditate on for a while. So, so Joseph, is this the sort of book that you would encourage all people to read? Or would you say um, someone with a passion for theology like yourself um, would find this to be an informative and life-changing fit that they could then share, share some of the nuggets with others, or is this for everyone? It's for everyone. Okay. Uh, I, um, so <clears throat> I don't generally recommend commentaries for people to read because they're, uh, they're, they're reference books, right? You don't right. read them cover to cover. Nor do I usually recommend this. Yeah. Yeah, but this this uh, um, this commentary is from a commentary series called the uh, Brazos Theological Commentary Series, and the whole point is that it's supposed to be doing theology even as it reads the biblical text, mm. um, not just answering purely historical and cultural questions. Mm. Um, and uh, it's like any other commentary to the extent that you don't have to read it cover to cover. If there's one particular part of Ezekiel that you want to uh, dive deeper into. Um, like if you want to look at child sacrifice or the Valley of dry bones, which are both talked about in the book of Ezekiel, you can read those sections. And, um, you know, I know a couple of other, a couple of Robert Jensen 
experts in my life. Um, and when I have asked them, if you were going to recommend any book for someone to be introduced to the person and theology of Robert Jensen, which book would you recommend? Mm. And both of them who don't know each other and said it independently of each other said his commentary on Ezekiel wow. would probably be a great place to start. Um, and uh, read the introduction um, if you're going to pick up his commentary, because he unpacks some important things, including his unapologetic Christological interpretation of Ezekiel and how mm. the word of the Lord is an anticipation of incarnation. Um, but then you can dig into the individual passages and each passage that he addresses, he writes maybe four to five pages. So it's not like an incredibly difficult task to sit down and just read a few select passages to mm. get a taste of how we should be reading the book of Ezekiel in the right. church and uh, introducing us to a little bit of the wonder that is God and his history with his people that he is emphatically emotionally involved in. Right. I appreciate that. And and just that one of the last things you said was you, you mentioned how we should be reading Ezekiel in the church. I can't remember the last time I heard a sermon that referenced Ezekiel. And I just, I can't even remember a time I preached from Ezekiel uh, in the last several years. And so, uh, that's wonderful, right? Like, like perhaps this is a book that the church needs a lot of help with. Uh, I oh, don't, absolutely. I don't think actually that's really in question. I think we need a lot of help with it. So I so appreciate this, Joseph. I, I appreciate your lens and your passion and you being on the podcast today. Well, thanks. I am, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And I'm grateful for your friendship. Thanks for joining my conversation with pastor and Dr. Joseph Lear and this episode of Your Pastor Reads Books. Check out our show notes for links to Joseph's Substack account, as well as the books we mentioned. Also, if you want to support the podcast in spirit or your bank account, you can subscribe to it at yprb.substack.com. That's yprb.substack.com. Or for more information about me and other creative projects I'm working on, click around on my website at heatherweber.org. That's Weber with one B. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy a great book today.